We're so blessed here at Anacostia River Church to hear the Word of God every Sunday, to hear the Word of God be opened up. That's not true of everybody. That wasn't true of uh, my experience in a Christian environment all my life, but amazingly, some Christian churches don't often up, open up the Word of God, and uh, many sermons don't stay in the Word. They might start there and go off uh, elsewhere. Some 30 years ago, 32 years ago, um, I started taking my Bible to church. Uh, the pastor that was assigned to my church where I went to college, uh, he wanted people to bring their Bibles and to open their Bibles and to follow what he was uh, preaching. So I started bringing my Bible to church and uh, came home for break one time. And I asked my great-grandmother, I grew up with my great-grandparents, I asked my great-grandmother, why don't you bring your Bible to church? Because I knew she loved the Word of God. She read it every day. She never missed an opportunity to re read the Word of God and, and study uh, the Word of God. But she didn't bring a Bible to church. Well, she said, he ain't going to preach from it. No, how? <laughs> if you don't understand, let me translate. He's not going to preach from the Bible anyway. <laughs> And that has stuck with me. That has stuck with me. Uh, I don't want to be guilty of uh, not preaching from the Bible. So I call your attention to the book of Romans in the New Testament, chapter 7. I believe that is page 943. Am I correct? Okay. Romans chapter 7 in the New Testament. Hear the word of God. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Thus, a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. What shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, 
but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. The Word of God. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this opportunity that you give us to hear from you. Speak to us, please, through your word. Give us ears to hear what your spirit says. And Father, transform our lives by your power. Draw us to yourself. Help us to see you as you are. Help us to see ourselves rightly in relationship to you as sinners. Help us to see Christ Jesus as Lord and as precious to our souls. Visit us today in this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I had one place of work uh, several years ago. I worked for a public high school for a dozen years. And I used to love uh, lunchtime, uh, not just for the food, but for the conversation, just to gather with the other teachers and teaching assistants and uh, student supervisors and aides, just to uh, converse and talk. Uh, we had a real family atmosphere, and it, it, it really made it uh, one of my favorite places ever that I had to work. Um, often, we'd get into uh, deep discussions, Sometimes those discussions would turn to uh, matters of uh, religion or faith. You know, you can hardly get into a discussion about uh, Christianity, specifically nowadays Christian sexual morality, without being dragged into a discussion about God's law. People will always go to uh, the book of Leviticus, and they ask you questions. Well, well, if that's true, what you say, what about these laws? Uh, uh, stoning as punishment. You believe in stoning people? Uh, or prohibition on eating uh, shellfish? Uh, or wearing garments of cloth made of two kinds of uh, material? Do, do you follow those laws? You, you Christians, you pick and choose what laws you want to obey. Uh, they say if you're going to make people obey these laws about sexual morality, why don't you make them obey those laws? Why don't you follow those other laws too? You know, to prepare yourself for these kinds of discussions, I encourage you to study chapter 19 of our Confession of Faith. It really deals with that question. Uh, it deals with God's law. I want to look at that uh, Confession of Faith uh, briefly. It's on page 11 in your bulletin. And I want us to read together these uh, first three paragraphs in the confession. Uh, they deal with God's law and our view as Christians of how we relate to God's law. Page 11. Paragraph 1. Let's read together. God gave Adam a law written in his heart that required his full obedience also, one command in particular, namely, that he must not eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. 
Thereby, Adam and all his posterity were bound to personal, complete, exact, and perpetual obedience. God promised life upon the fulfilling and threatened death upon the breach of the law and endued Adam with power and ability to keep his law. I want you to notice in this uh, first paragraph, the reason Adam had to obey God's law because God is the creator. He makes the rules. This is his world. This is his universe. Uh, you know yourself, if you're a parent, you, you don't let your kids just run wild. It's your house, right? This is God's universe. He makes the laws. And he told his creation, here's what I want you to do. And they had an obligation to do what their creator said. Let's look at paragraph two. The same law that was first written in man's heart continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness after Adam fell into sin and was given by God upon Mount Sinai in the form of ten commandments written in two tables. The first four commandments constitute our duty towards God and the remaining six our duty to man. The ten are known as the moral law. So when we talk about the moral law, we're talking about the ten commandments. And this uh, is not only the law uh, when, that he gave to Adam, but after Adam fell and given uh, by God, by Moses on Mount Sinai, this is uh, the moral law that God has given us. But there's more. Paragraph 3. Besides the moral law, God also gave to the people of Israel ceremonial laws which served as types of things to come. They fell into two main groups. In one group were rites, partly relating to worship, which prefigured Christ, His graces, actions, sufferings, and the blessings He procured for us. The other group contained a variety of instructions about moral duties. By divine appointment, all these ceremonial laws were to be observed, but only until they were abrogated in New Testament days by Jesus Christ, the true Messiah, and only lawgiver who was empowered by the Father to terminate them. So we have the moral law, the Ten Commandments. Then we have these other laws, these ceremonial laws, and certain instructions about moral duties that were given to God's people, Old Testament Israel, until Messiah came. Given until Messiah came, who is Jesus Christ. So all these uh, these ceremonial laws, these moral duties that were given specifically to Israel were fulfilled in the Messiah's coming. So when they bring up shellfish and stoning people, you tell them we're in a new covenant now. You're talking about what happened with the old covenant. But notice he makes a separation here. The writer makes a separation between the moral law and these ceremonial laws. Okay? Look at the first sentence of uh, paragraph 4. I'll just read it for us. To the people of Israel, God also gave sundry judicial laws, which applied as long as they remained a, na a nation. So these were given specifically to Israel. They didn't apply to other nations. They were specifically for the people of God under the old covenant, Israel. And let's read the fifth paragraph together. Obedience to the moral law remains forever binding upon both justified persons and all others, and that in respect of the actual content of the law, and also of the authority of God, the Creator, who is its author. In the gospel, Christ in no way cancels necessity for this obedience. On the contrary, He greatly stresses our obligation to obey the moral law. So obedience to the moral law, the Ten Commandments, remains forever binding, forever binding. And Christ in no way cancels that moral law. In fact, he reaffirms it in the New Testament. The apostles reaffirm that moral law. So next time you get yourself in those conversations, uh, tell them you need to make a distinction here between the moral law and the rest of the laws that were specifically given to Israel that were fulfilled in Christ Jesus, the Messiah. Well, it is God's moral law that we're concerned about this morning. We're concerned with God's moral law, or the Ten Commandments. That's our focus. Specifically, what is the Christian's relationship 
to the moral law? What is the Christian's relationship to the law? Is the law bad? Is it, is it good? And do Christians have to obey it? We read in the confession that we're obligated to obey it, but what does the Bible say? Do Christians have to obey the law? In our text here, Romans 7 that I read, the Apostle Paul teaches us that God's law is good. First of all, because it is God's law, but it is also good because it highlights the problem in us, driving us to Christ. It is good because it comes from God. It's His law. But it's good because it also points to us and highlights the problem in us, inherent in us, and drives us to Christ. In Romans 7, the apostle asks and answers four questions. And I was thinking of how to outline this. I, I decided to land all those four questions as the, as the headings, as the points in our outline. So we have four points, and they all center around these four questions which Paul asks. The first question we find in verse 1. Paul writes, or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? The answer to this question tells us what is the Christian believer's relationship to God's law. It tells us what is Christians' relationship to God's law. To answer this question, Paul uses the example of marriage as, as an illustration. Verse 2, for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, that law of marriage, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Till death us do part. Paul says that in marriage, when a spouse dies, that particular marriage is ended. The surviving spouse, the widower, widower, is then free to marry another. Death releases the surviving spouse from his or her previous marriage. And then he then applies this illustration to believers' relationship to the law, to the moral law. Verse 4, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to, another, to him who has been raised from the dead. Paul considers these believers to whom he was writing, a group which most likely uh, was Jew and Gentile, to have been in some way bound to the law. And in what way? they had an obligation to obey because it is God's law. And as his creation, we have an obligation to obey. All humanity has an obligation to obey. And all humanity is judged by God's law as guilty before God. That's chapter 3 of Romans. Uh, verse 10, chapter 3 of Romans says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And in verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the moral law judges everyone guilty. So like a wife is bound to her husband, so humanity is bound under this law. But in Christ, says Paul, believers have died to the law. Believers have died to the law. What does he mean by this? Well, if we look in chapter 6 of Romans, we notice Paul told these same believers that in Christ they had died to sin. That's chapter 6, verses 2 and verse 10. In other words, believers' identification with Christ is such that as he died on the cross for sin, as a sacrifice for sin, so in him, those who believe on him also died to sin. As he rose from the dead, so those who believe on him also rose from the dead. That is, from a state of sin to walk or, or live in newness of life. That's what we learned in chapter 6 of Romans. So now in chapter 7, Paul says these believers have died to the law. 
How so? Because Jesus Christ is the believer's substitute. He stood in our place. Jesus said, I came to fulfill all righteousness. He lived the sinless life that we could not live, obeying God's law perfectly. He never sinned in any point. He never failed to obey what his Father commanded in any point. And then on the cross, he stood in the place of everyone who will ever trust in him, bearing the punishment that their sins deserve. In his life and death, Jesus satisfied the law's righteous demands. The law says the soul who sins shall die. And so Jesus fulfilled the law's demands. He bore the sins of sinners, and he died as the punishment for their sin. God's law says the wages of sin is death, and Christ suffered death in our place. So, when Christ died on the cross, satisfying God's law, believers in Christ through him also died, died to the law through Christ. He's our substitute, and through him we also died to the law because he satisfied the law, and there's no more satisfaction to be made which brings up an important point that we should always remember, and that is God only punishes sin once. God never punishes sin twice. So if Jesus bore sins on the cross and he suffered the punishment, there is no more punishment. There is no more satisfaction to be made uh, for those sins. So those who trust in Christ, we are in Christ. And as he died to sin, so we died to sin. As he died satisfying the law's demands, so we have died to the law. In other words, we're dead to the law like a marriage, like the marriage in Paul's illustration. The wife whose husband died is freed from her previous marriage and is now free to marry another man. So Paul says in verse 4, believers have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. That's Jesus Christ. Paul says we were married to the law, as it were, bound to the righteous demands of the law. But now through Christ, we have died to the law. We're no longer bound to the law and now are free to belong to another, even to Jesus Christ. Paul wrote about that same thing in his epistle to uh, the church at Galatia. In uh, the book of Galatians, it's just a couple books to your right. The book of Galatians chapter 3 and verses 23 through 25. And we read these words. Paul says, now before faith came, before we came to faith as Christians, we were held captive under the law in prison until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian. It held us, it watched over us, until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So the law, we were bound by it until Christ came. And that we who trust in Christ have now been freed from the law in order to be married, joined to, bound to Christ. And for what reason did God do all this? That's also given in our text, verse 4. In order that we may bear fruit for God. And then he explains it in verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that, which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. This is the believer's relationship to the law of God. One, we're dead to the law. Secondly, we're free to belong to Christ Jesus, who has been raised from the dead. And thirdly, for this reason, so that we may serve Christ. But notice, secondly, that Paul speaks of our sinful passions aroused by the law. He seems to be saying the law caused our sinful passions. And Paul anticipates our thinking here as he asks another question in verse 7. He asks, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? The answer to this question tells us the relationship of God's law 
to our sin. We saw the Christian's relationship to the law. Now we see the relationship of God's law to our sin. If the law arouses sinful passions, sinful desires, sinful feelings, the thought naturally follows that the law itself must be sinful. But Paul says that is not the case at all. He says, by no means. Yet if, I, if it had not been for the law, says Paul, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. That's one of the Ten Commandments. You shall not covet. Commandment number 10. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. So beginning in verse 7, Paul speaks in the first person. He speaks here autobiographically. This is his testimony. He says, God's law is not sin or sinful. Rather, God's law identified his sin, marked it out as sin, put a label on it. He says, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Then Paul gives an example of covetousness, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. You know, every parent knows this. Child doesn't think about touching the stove until you say, don't touch that stove. They don't think about running into the street, so you say, now stay out of the street. It looks like every time you look up, they're in the street. We know that about ourselves, don't we? You drive along on expressway doing fine until you see a speed limit sign saying speed limit is 50 miles an hour. And all of a sudden, 50 miles an hour is so slow. Uh, my son was telling me, Dad, you, you drive too fast. I was on uh, 395. Dad, you're driving too fast. I said, you know how fast I'm driving? No, I, I, I'm driving 50 miles an hour. It just seemed fast with those curves. I said, you know how fast I drove back in Illinois? 65, 70, 75, we, we speed in Illinois. Uh, they drive slow here. You want to see some fast driving, go, go to Chicago. Those folks are driving fast. You get run over if you go too slow. Yeah? But that speed limit points out the sin. We don't know it's sin until we read that speed limit and says, this is the speed limit. Sin exists. Sin is in the world, but we're not aware of it until there is a law. So the law is not sinful. The law merely identifies sin, merely points it out. The law doesn't cause us to sin. If it caused us to sin, it would be sinful. So what's the problem? Paul says the problem is his sin. Paul says the problem is myself. And it's the same with us. Our problem is our sin. The problem is not outside of us. The problem is in us. The problem is us. Look again at verses 7 and 8. Paul says, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. You see, sin is opportunistic. Sin uses the law as an excuse to act out. The law says no, sin says yes. The law says stop, sin says go. I used to teach high school. Some people just act out just because you have a law, just because you have a rule. They just have to act out and, and test that. That's, that's sin in us. There's nothing wrong with the rule, nothing wrong with the commandment. There's something wrong with us. We want to rebel. We want to have our own way. We don't want anyone telling us what to do. And that's what happened with Adam and, and Eve. God said, don't. You can have all the rest of this in the garden. Just don't touch this one thing. That one thing is the thing they wanted. You can't tell me what to do. Something's wrong in us is, is what the, Paul says. The problem is not outside of us. The problem is us. Sin is opportunistic. Sin is also a killer. Look at verse 9. Paul says, I was once alive apart from the law. This is autobiographical. He says, I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death 
to me. Why, Paul? For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, sin killed me. Through the commandment, sin killed me. Verse 12, so the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Sin, you see, is a killer. The wages of sin is death, said Paul in Romans 6. And the law is a means through which sin kills us. We cannot violate God's law with impunity because God is holy and just. He must punish sin. He's a creator. We are his creation. This is his universe. As I said, he makes the rules. And God has said the soul who sins shall die. So there's nothing wrong with God's law. Paul tells us in verse 12, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and, and righteous and good. The problem is not the law. The problem is us, our sin. The, the title of the message that, that is uh, in the bulletin is the, the title that has been mapped out by Pastor Thabiti. He maps out the messages uh, about the three months in, at a time, uh, what they will be and what the text will be. And the, the title of the message is, We Believe That God's Law is Holy. But if I could add anything to that title, it would be, We Believe God's Law is Holy, But We Are Not. God's Law is Holy, But We Are Not. At this point, Paul anticipates another question from his readers. We see that in verse 13. He asks, did that which is good, that is God's law, did that which is good then bring death to me? In other words, if the law of God is used by sin to kill the sinner, is the law then an accomplice in the crime? Does God's law bring death? The answer to this question reveals to us the ongoing struggle within the Christian. The answer reveals to us the ongoing struggle within the Christian. Verse 13, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. So if the law did not bring death, what did? He answers that. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, through the law. For, for what purpose? In order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. What does Paul mean by through the commandment sin might become sinful beyond measure? Well, let's go back to Romans 5. And last time I preached, I was coming from Romans 5. Back in Romans 5, verse 12 we read about how sin came into the world. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, through Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. So sin came in the world how? Through Adam, through God's creation. And as a result of sin, death came through sin. So we could assume that Adam and Eve would have lived forever had they not sinned. But because Adam sinned, death came into the world through that sin. And so death spread to all men, to all of Adam's posterity, because all sin. People want to say, well, that's not fair. Adam, Adam sinned. Why should I be punished? With, Do you sin? Well, well, yeah, well, yeah, well, you know, well, you, nobody's perfect. Well, you're, you're, you justly die. Death spread to all men because all sin. All sin. And then Paul adds this phrase, Romans 5, verse 13. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. And I told you last time I preached this uh, passage uh, that Paul is not saying that uh, people got away with sin until the law came through Moses. Rather, uh, he is saying that the, the, the proof that sin was in the world between Adam and the time when the law was given unto Moses is the fact that death reigned. The wages of sin is death. People died. So that proves that there was sin. Uh, the thing is, until the law came, those who sinned were not counted as violating specific, direct commands of God like Adam did. 
with the giving of the law through Moses, those who disobeyed were now committing flagrant, direct violations of God's commands. The late F.F. Bruce, the theologian commenting on uh, Romans 5, 13 and 14 said, sin was present in the world ever since Adam's fall, but the law served the purpose of bringing sin right out into the light of day so that it might be more clearly recognized for what it really is. So Paul says in Romans 5, verse 20, now the law came in to increase the trespass, to to bring it out into the light of day, to make clear that sin is sin. So back to our text in Romans 7, verse 13, did that which is good then become death, bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin, brought out into the light of day, made clear that it is sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. And for the Christian, this presents a problem because, remember, we have been saved, released from the law through the death of Christ. In Him, we died to that which held us captive. And we died for this purpose, that we might serve Him. Serving our Lord is what we want to do. That's what we desire to do now because we've been released now. So we can be married, joined, bound to another, to Christ. And we want to serve Him. We want to please Him. We want to follow Him. But we still sin. We still sin. We still disobey. We still fail to follow God's commandments. And this is our ongoing struggle. And the apostle empathizes with us. We know this because Paul is only speaking in the first person. But beginning in verse 14, he switches tenses to the present tense. He was speaking of himself, but in the past. Beginning in verse 14, he's speaking of himself, but in the present. In other words, beginning in verse 14, Paul is not talking about his past experience, but his present reality. Let's look at it in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want... It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members." Do you feel Paul here? Do you identify with what he's saying? Is his experience your experience? So what's going on here? Paul says the problem is not God's law. We already saw that. He said the law is spiritual. Rather, he says the problem is me. I am of the flesh, sold under sin. And my friends, that's our problem too. We are of the flesh, sold under sin. What is this flesh that Paul is talking about? The flesh is our fallen human nature, our, our humanness is what I heard John MacArthur call it. It's, it's our humanness. It's, it's all we are apart from Christ is the flesh. It's, it's us. It's not something we can detach from us. We don't want to 
uh, go to that Greek thought that, that makes uh, our physical bodies evil and the spirit is good and you separate that. No, the, the flesh is us. We're, we're, we're unified here. It's all we are apart from Christ. But what about those who have trusted in Christ Jesus as their Lord and Savior? When we came to faith, did not a transformation take place? Were we not born again, as Jesus said? Uh, did not the wind of God's Spirit at some particular time that we may or may not be aware of or remember, did it not blow upon our souls, making us new creations in Christ? I mean, Paul told us earlier in uh, Romans 5, 5, that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And it is God's Spirit that has been poured into our hearts that li who lives in us, who makes us new, who, who gives us new desires, gives us a new determination to live for Christ. As we read earlier in verse 5, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. So that should have solved all our problems. Shouldn't it? No. Mm -mm. Because we still live in these mortal bodies, these bodies which are prone to decay, these bodies which are prone to sin and temptation. We still have to deal with our human fallenness. We have to deal with our humanity until Christ returns or until we die and go be with him. And this means there's a conflict, a conflict, a, a struggle between our flesh, or what Paul calls sin that dwells within me, and our new nature in Christ. There's a, there's a conflict there. And again, Paul wrote about that uh, to the church at Galatia in chapter 5 of uh, Galatians, verse 17. Paul wrote, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, they're against the Holy Spirit who lives in us, who has made us new creations in Christ. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So there's a conflict in us who belong to Christ. That's bad news, but it's good news too. I was talking with my brother Rick the other day. We were uh, reading through Scripture, talking through uh, this text, as a matter of fact. And, uh, uh, and brother Rick brought up this, this good news here, and that is that we do struggle. That's bad news, but it is good news too. We do struggle. Do you know there was a time we didn't struggle? Our, our, our sinful flesh said, do this, and we did it. Our sinful flesh said, go there, and we went there. Sinful flesh said, no, don't do this right thing that you ought to do, and we obeyed our, our flesh. We didn't struggle at all. That's why sometimes uh, those who are outside of Christ seem to be at peace. We talk about the peace that comes. Come to Christ that you can experience peace, and, and, and some sinners say, I'm already at peace. At that, at that high school where I used to work, there was a teacher there, and I want you to pray for him. Uh, the name is Karen, but Karen used to be Ken. And I remember when Ken became Karen, and I sat down with her to talk with her about her, her change, what she had decided to do. And, and one of the things she told me is that she's at peace now. Unfortunately, I, didn't, I did not say any. I was so blown away. I was looking at hearing the voice of the person I knew and looking at this person in a dress with makeup and everything. I was too shocked to say anything. I just listened. But that was one of the things she said to me. I'm at peace now. We conclude from that they're at peace. It must be right. But our scripture here tells us peace doesn't always mean all is right. When we were in the flesh and following the dictates of the flesh, we went wherever the flesh said go. So there's no struggle. There's no opposition. So in a sense, we are at peace. So it's good news that we who are in Christ now, we do struggle. 
It's one thing that I, I, I lean upon to reassure me that I, I, I belong to Christ because I do struggle against the flesh. What Paul said here is my testimony. It's, it's my story too. The thing I want to do is I don't do. And the thing I don't want to do, that's the very thing I do. I can identify with Paul, but that tells me I, there, there's something good in me, Christ in me, that doesn't want to do that. Because before I came to Christ, I wanted to please my parents, my great-grandparents. I, I, I was one of those kids. I, I just loved to please them. I loved that attaboy that my great-grandfather used to say to me, attaboy. This made me feel so proud that, that, that he said, attaboy, you know, whatever it was. I wanted that approval uh, from them. But I didn't necessarily want approval from God. Not that I didn't want approval from God, but God wasn't really, he wasn't a concern to me. It was other, other people. That was before Christ. But since Christ, I want to please him. But I find that the flesh doesn't want to please him. And there is a struggle. So there was a time we didn't struggle against the flesh. But we do struggle now as Christians. There was a time we couldn't say what Paul says. Let's look at those verses again, beginning at verse 14. And notice carefully what what Paul says here. Because there is disagreement about whether Paul is talking about himself or talking about somebody else, I believe he's talking about himself. And some people believe, well, this is before he was a Christian. No, I believe it's talking about Paul as a Christian, as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what he says about himself. For we, do, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do What I want, what does he want to do? He wants to obey God. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. What does he hate? He hates disobeying God. He hates sinning against God. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. There's no problem with the law. The law is right. It is holy. It is righteous. It is good, and I want to do it. I agree with the law. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, in my humanness, all that I am apart from Christ, in my humanity, dwells no good thing, for I have the desire to do what is right. I have the desire to do what is right. This is why I believe Paul is speaking as a Christian here. He's speaking of Christians. Sinners, those outside of Christ, do not have a desire to do what is right. They do not hate their sin. This is a a Christian's testimony. I hate my sin, and I do the thing I hate And I don't do the thing I want to do, which is obey God. I I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. There's the problem. Verse 19, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, the regenerate me, indwelt by the Spirit in me, but is sin that dwells in me, this human fallen nature that, that I have from Adam that I was born with, that I'm carrying about with me until I die. Sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law. This, this word law is a different law we're talking about now. We're not talking about the moral law. I find it to be a law of principle would be another word, a a principle. F.F. Bruce calls it the evil principle or the the tyranny of indwelling sin. I find it to be a law, a principle, that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. That is the definition of a Christian right there. One of the definitions of Christians. Delight in the law of God. I delight in his law. Don't you hear uh, echoes of uh, Psalm 119 there? I delight in the law of God. His word is my delight. But I see in my members and in me, in the members of my body, another law, another principle waging war against the law of my mind 
and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Can you identify with this? Do you know what Paul is talking about? There are lots of parts of Scripture I don't understand at all. I I, I pray for understanding. They, They confuse me. There's no confusion here. I know exactly what Paul is talking about because I live it every day. I live with me. There's three enemies we have. There's, there's the world, this, this, this sinful world in which we live in, the, the, not, not the plants and trees and the grass and, and not, not people, but this world system, this, this, this world view, this, this climate, this atmosphere uh, in which we live in, which, which tempts us and lures us away from God. And then there's the devil, that, that infernal foe Stephen Olford called him, who is real. We... we we should never underestimate our foe, the devil. We should not act like he doesn't exist. He's not a figment of our imagination. He is real, and demons are real, and they exist, and they are active in the world, and, and they work to undermine our faith. But the greatest enemy I find often is not the world, it's not the devil, but it's the flesh. It's me. That's why joining a convent, joining a nunnery doesn't, doesn't solve the problem because when you go away to that, that convent, when you go away to that monastery, guess who's there? You. That problem is still there. Some people discover that in marriage. They divorce this spouse because they're dissatisfied. They marry another spouse, and that marriage doesn't last. And they divorce that person. They marry another one, and they keep on with this serial marriage. They're looking to be satisfied. Maybe, just maybe, part of the problem, at least, is in you. It's in you. I just don't like this employer. He, this boss, he's just not kind. He's not, he's not fair. I'm quitting this job. I'm going to another job. That boss ain't no good either. I'm quitting that job and going, what's the common factor here? It is you. It is me. Our greatest enemy is us. In fact, I would suggest that if you cannot identify with Paul's struggle here, if this seems foreign to you, I would suggest you need to check yourself. You need to check yourself if you be in the Lord or not. You say, oh, I I don't don't struggle. I don't don't have those problems. I just just do right. Well, Well, John told us we say we have no sin. We lie. And the truth is not in us. If we can't identify with this, well, I, I, I don't have any struggle. Are you sure you're not just going along with the flesh? You sure you're not just flowing along with the, with the current and therefore there is no struggle? If we are in Christ, we should be able to identify with what Paul says here. Why? Because every true believer in Christ can say, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. And if we understand this struggle, we'll understand Paul's cry in the next verse, verse 24. Wretched man that I am. He says, that's me. Wretched man that I am. That's me too. That's us. We're honest with ourselves. We're wretched. We're broken. We're, we're lost. We're, we're, we're fallen. We're, we're, we're sinful. Wretched man that I am. That's why I don't like people to, to, to mess around with the hymns. Let's leave it as it was. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head, some modern hymns say, for sinners such as I? No, for such a worm as I. The world loves amazing grace, but do they understand what John Newton wrote? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch, a wretch like me. Oh, wretched man that I am. And if we understand and share share Paul's cry, we will want to ask the same question he asked. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will set me free from this body of death? I want to do right. I want to follow God's command. I love the Lord. I love His law. His law is precious to me. His law is food to me. His law is water. It's drink. It's it's, it's refreshment. It's nourishment. It's sustenance for my soul. But I don't do it. Who will rescue me from this body of death? This body of death, expression body of death, refers to a corpse. 
Paul's saying he's tied to a corpse, dragging around a dead body. You talk about a monkey on your back. No, Paul says, I have a dead body. It's, it's myself. I, I'm tied to this corpse, and I can't get free. He already said in verse 23 that he was captive to the law that dwells in my law of sin, the law of sin that dwells in my members. This law, this principle of sin in his members is this body of death that he's talking about. It is what F.F. Bruce called human nature under hostile occupation. Occupation of sin in our, in our humanity. And Paul cries, who will deliver me from it? And the answer to this question tells us the source of our victory. Verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, he rejoices. Here's the good news. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. It's through Jesus Christ. That's the answer to our problem. That's where our deliverance comes from. That's our victory through Jesus Christ. Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but when I flesh, I serve the law of sin. There we come to the end of the chapter. But these chapter divisions and verse numbers did not come with Scripture. They, they aren't inspired. They aren't what the apostle uh, wrote. They were put in, I think, with the Geneva uh, Bible, if I remember correctly. And so he, he doesn't really stop there. And so uh, I have to go on because Paul goes on. He doesn't stop there. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. There is therefore, therefore, in light of everything that I've just written in chapter 7, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? For the law of the spirit of life, this, this expression, the law of the spirit of life, it's just a big expression meaning the Holy Spirit who lives within. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. Uh, Romans chapter 8 verse 9 says, If anyone has not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. All true believers in Christ, all Christians, have the Spirit of Christ. God the Holy Spirit have another person living in you. The law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. This is what he described in, the, in chapter 7, the law of sin and death. You sin and you die. You sin and you die. And, and sin uses the commandment as a bludgeon to beat you to death. You die. You sin and you die. But the law of the Spirit of life, the Holy Spirit in us, has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. How? For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. What, what, what could the law not do? The law couldn't justify us. It couldn't make us right with God. What could the law not do? The law can't stop us from sinning. It just points out sin. That's sin. That is sin. That's sin too. That's wrong too. That's all the law was intended to do, to point out sin, to point out how we fall short, to point out how we don't measure up to God's standard. That's all the law can do. But God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. How? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. Look at that. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son. God the Son, the eternal Son of God, became man, became human, and lived among us, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. That's referring to the incarnation, His birth through Mary in Bethlehem. He became man, came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He was just like us. He ate and He slept and He got tired and He grieved and He cried. He felt pain and He ultimately died on the cross. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He came for the purpose of dying as a sacrifice of sin. I, I, I once argued with a person, um, this is many years ago, I was a freshman in, uh, in college. And this is actually my grandmother, who's deceased now. She said, Jesus came to set an example. 
He just came to show us how to live. I said, no, he came to die for sin. No, that's not, that's not right. That, you know, the Bible is just a book written by men, and that's just what they put in there to, to say what they wanted to say. But that's not why, why he came. And, and, and I, I remember raising my voice. I never raised my voice with my grandmother. This is not my great-grandmother that raised me. This is my grandmother, my mother's mother. I never raised my voice. Nobody raised their voice with my grandmother. And I said, you're wrong. <laughs> And I prepared for her. To, I, I didn't know what was going to happen. I just closed my eyes. Just, I, I figured, Lord, I'm coming to meet you. I'm, I'm <laughs> but that's not what God, Jesus came to do, not just to live. Yes, he did set an example. He obeyed the, the Father perfectly. He never sinned a day in his life. But he came for the purpose of dying, giving himself as a ransom for many. He died in the place of others, in the place of all who will trust in him. So he sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. God condemned sin in the flesh. He, he poured out his wrath on his son. He condemned sin in the flesh. And this is the gospel. If we believe on Jesus Christ, who he is and what he did, what he accomplished for us, we shall be saved. He died for our sins. He rose again from the dead as proof that the Father accepted the sacrifice of the Son. And when we trust in him, we're saved, we're forgiven, we're made heirs, joint heirs with Christ. The Holy Spirit comes in us to dwell, gives us a new nature. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Remember, we couldn't obey the law. We can't do what God says. We want to do it and we keep, we keep failing. And Paul says, Jesus came, lived and died, that if we trust in him, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. How? Who walk not according to the flesh, to the dictates of your, of your sinful self, but according to the Spirit, the Holy Spirit who lives within. God has not only saved us, forgiven us all our sins through Christ, declared us righteous, clothed us in the righteousness of Christ, indwelt us with his spirit, but that same spirit who lives in us will give us the power, Paul says, to do what we couldn't do before. Obey the law of God. Obey the law of God. And we saw that in our text earlier, Romans 7, verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. That doesn't mean we throw out the law. God hasn't thrown out His law. There's nothing wrong with His law. His law is good. But we don't serve in the old way, that is, in our own power, in our own strength, that's going to that's gonna man up and, and, and do this thing, going to do these commandments. We can't do it. But we serve in the new way of the Spirit that is in dependence upon the Spirit of Christ who lives within us. And, and, and the way I, I see that is we see what God's command is. And remember I said, broadly speaking, God's law is, is all of the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation. Whatever He tells you in there, we, we are obligated to do. And we see what God has commanded and we determine, with our will, we determine, I am going to do what God says do because I belong to him. He, Jesus is my Savior. He's my Lord, and I want to please him. I'm going to do that. But we trust in the power of the Holy Spirit to help us do that. I'm going to take a step, but Lord Jesus, I can't do it without you. I need your power. I need your spirit. I need your ability. And in that way, we walk according to the Spirit. We serve in the new way of the Spirit. Our confession stated in paragraph 5, obedience to the moral law remains forever binding upon both justified persons, those outside of Christ, and all others, and that in respect of the actual content of the law and also of the authority of God the Creator, who is its author. In the gospel, Christ in no way cancels the necessity for this obedience. 
We're, we're not freed from obeying what God says. He doesn't just set us free, do what you want to do. No, no. We're obligated to do what God says. But we can't do it. We can't obey God's law in our own strength. Before Christ, while we were living in the flesh, Paul said our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. And we stood justly condemned. But even after coming in Christ, to Christ, we struggle, finding that we now have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And the answer is through Jesus Christ, in dependence upon His Spirit, who lives within us, who trusts in Him. And that's our victory. That's our hope. That's what we have as believers in Christ. But if you are not in Christ, you have no power to obey God's law and to please Him. And the wages of sin is death. God is a holy God. He is a righteous God. He keeps careful accounts. That's why we don't need to take vengeance. People uh, talk about injustice in the world and and wonder when is there going to be justice and people get angry and they get bitter. I don't get bitter because I know God is judge. God knows everything. And he will repay. And if you're outside of Christ, that means you. Because you've sinned and you can't escape from God. He knows who you are. He knows where you are. He knows where to find you. The Bible says when Christ returns again, the dead will be raised. The dead can't hide. He'll raise them from the dead. Those who are alive can't hide. He'll bring them to stand before his judgment seat. So we can't hide from God. He'll find us out. And there is no covering. There is no shelter. There is no hope apart from Christ Jesus. In him is forgiveness of sin. In him there is pardon. You aren't good enough to earn favor with God, but through faith in Christ, we receive His righteousness, and we're declared righteous, not based on our own righteousness. It's not our intrinsic righteousness, but it's an alien righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness that's attributed to us. And then we receive God, the Holy Spirit, who gives us the power then to walk in God's ways. If you're outside of Christ, this doesn't apply to you, and I urge you, I plead with you, come to Christ, believe in Him, trust in Him, the Son of God, who became man, who took on Himself the sins of those who will trust in Him, rose from the dead, and He's coming back again, and coming back is judge. Trust Christ. We believe God's law is holy, but we are not, not in ourselves. We trust Christ. Trust Him today. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for your truth. We pray that you'd write it on our hearts by your spirit. And we pray that you would do your work in us, cause your word to bear fruit. Grant faith to those who are outside of Christ. Grant them the power to believe and trust in Him. Draw them to Yourself. And I pray, Lord, that You would encourage those of us who are in Christ, who have been struggling with the flesh, struggling with sin, struggling with temptation, and just don't know what to do and ready to give up. Remind them of the resource You have given us in Yourself, Your Spirit dwelling within us. May they not give up the fight. To give up the fight is to be lost. No, we cannot give up the fight. We must struggle. Struggling is good news. It means we want to follow you. It means we have new life within. It's good news that we struggle. And you can give us a victory by your power. And we thank you. We praise you. We adore you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.